0: Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated this morning. If you got a Bible with you, Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have all the verses on the screen and you can follow along with us there. But we are um, in week three of a series called Jesus versus Religion. We'll unpack that in the next few minutes. But back in um, South Carolina at Christy and I's first home that we owned in our front yard, we had this tree that was a Bradford pear tree. They, They don't actually produce pears, by the way we had this Bradford pear tree in our front yard, and most of the year it looked like just a normal, average, typical tree with green leaves, but every year, kind of late winter, early spring, the leaves on the tree would bloom and turn this beautiful white, and the entire tree was just filled with beautiful white flowers. So that's a Bradford pear tree. That is unfortunately not my front yard from South Carolina. I wish it was, but that's just a picture from Google. But these trees, when the flowers would bloom and they would turn white, these trees were absolutely gorgeous. I mean, like so gorgeous where I would look out my window in the morning when it's in full bloom, and I would just think and be like, man, I can't believe a tree that beautiful is in my front yard. They're absolutely gorgeous. But there is a problem with Bradford pear trees. And the problem is that when the trees are in bloom, when they are at their most beautiful They smell like death, right? They absolutely reek. And this is like not my opinion, just something. I think this is like a known thing. If you pulled out your phone right now and you Google Bradford pear tree smell, this is the little blurb that will come up. It will tell you, it will say, their stench has been compared to rotting fish, urine, and other pungent bodily fluids. I know that's disgusting, but that's what it says, these trees smell like. When they bloom, they smell absolutely awful. And so it is just like crazy, such a weird contradiction. Because here is this thing that looks so incredibly gorgeous on the outside. But there is something happening on the inside of it that causes it to smell like death. It's the weirdest thing. Now, As we continue our series, Jesus versus religion, I tell you that because running to religion, all religion can do for you, the best religion can do for you, is to make you like that tree. All religion can do is to make your life where it looks nice on the outside. It looks pretty for anybody who's looking at you from the outside, but religion can never fix the stench of death and decay that is inside all of us. Right, that's what Jesus is gonna teach us this morning from Mark chapter seven. All religion can do is clean us up externally where we may look good on the outside, but it can't fix the stench of death that we all have inside of our hearts. So Matthew chapter seven, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter seven, verse one. This is what the Bible says. It says one day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus they noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, that's the Jewish religious leaders, they said they do not eat until they pour water over their cupped hands, as required by their ancient, what? By their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of the many traditions they have clung to, such as the ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples follow our age old traditions? They eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony. And Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and you substitute your tradition. So this story takes place after the story we looked at two weeks ago. If you missed that, you can go to the YouTube page and catch up there. But we looked at that story two weeks ago, and what we saw in that story was that when Jesus prioritized people over religious tradition, the religious leaders became very upset with him and began to plot how to have him killed. Because, remember, because Jesus prioritized people over religious tradition— the Pharisees were angry enough where they began to plot to have Jesus killed. And so this story in Mark 7 takes place after that. So it starts out, it says, one day some Pharisees and religious leaders from Jerusalem came to visit Jesus. Now, they're not coming to visit Jesus with good intentions They're not saying, hey, this guy, Jesus is teaching some good stuff. Let's go learn from him. They are coming to kind of stalk Jesus, to watch him, to try to catch him in the middle of some crime that they can accuse him of so that they can have him arrested and put to death. So they're following Jesus and the disciples around. They're watching their every move. And it says that the the disciples, they go and they begin to eat lunch without performing the ceremonial hand washing. And the Jewish Pharisees are angry at this. So again, the picture is it's lunchtime, right? Jesus, the Pharisees, they head down to the local buffet, right? They head into Golden Corral and instead of washing their hands, the disciples just go straight to the buffet. Like they get their plate, they start piling on the fried chicken and mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese. Like they're going over to the chocolate fountain over in the corner, you know, like does, does Golden Corral still have the chocolate fountain? Does anybody know? I don't know. If you know, let me know. But they're going and they just do all this before they wash their hands. And the Pharisees absolutely lose their minds. Now, here's what you got to understand. There are some religious and cultural um, kind of things at play here. The Pharisees are not mad because they are germophobes. They're like, these guys are going to the buffet before they clean their germs off their hands. How dare they? That, that's not the deal. And it, by the way, just nothing to do with the sermon, but we need to have a quick family meeting. Just um, ladies, you can tune out for a second. But gentlemen, look at me for a second. Gentlemen of Garden Oaks Baptist Church, get nothing to do with the scriptures. We have had the same little pump bottle of hand soap in that bathroom going on like six months now. It's the same bottle. I know it's the same bottle. Which tells me that guys, either you're not using enough soap or you're not washing your hands after you do your business. Gentlemen, wash your dang hands. That's nasty. That's gross. All right? All right. No, I know no questions. This is not a time for questions. This is not a time for questions. Wash your hands, Bill. Wash your hands, Bill. Even if you sanitize, still wash your hands. Get rid of that. All right? So here's the deal. The Pharisees, they're not like germaphobes like me. That's not their issue. It's not that they're like coming out of a global pandemic and everybody's super like conscious about this. Like, man, we all need to wash our hands before the buffet. That's not the deal. The hand washing that the disciples are neglecting here, it's not a hygienic washing. It's a religious washing. You see, the Pharisees in their day, they had this tradition that Before they would eat their meal, they would go and they would hold their hands open like this and somebody would pour water over them and then they would turn their hands like this and somebody would pour water over the top of their hands and then they would kind of make a fist and they would wash the water off each of their hands until their hands would dry. And this was a tradition that the Pharisees thought actually made them spiritually clean. Right, That's why they did this. The Pharisees thought that by doing this, by this religious ceremonial hand washing, it was making them spiritually clean. That's what the religious leaders thought. And so jump down to verse 14, but look at what Jesus says about this. He says, Jesus called the crowd to come in here. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. And this is so important. Jesus says, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. Or it's not what goes into your body that makes you spiritually unclean is what that means. It says you are defiled or you are spiritually unclean by what comes from your heart. See, the religious leaders, they thought that what came from the outside are the things that defiles you. They thought that it's all the things around us that make you unclean and make you a sinner. And so that's why they performed the ceremonial hand washing. Because for the religious leaders, they had this mindset where, well, if I'm on my way to lunch... And on the way to lunch, I accidentally, on the street, bump into somebody who's a prostitute or somebody who's a thief or, God forbid, a Roman soldier who's occupying our land and is godless. If I, you know, bump into somebody like that, then all of their sin, all of their uncleanliness is going to rub off on me. And then if I go and eat my lunch without cleaning all of their sin, all of their uncleanliness off of me, then I'm going to be ingesting that sin. I'm going to be ingesting their uncleanliness. And by default, I am going to be unclean. And so the religious leaders before a meal, they would would wash themselves as this spiritual act, as a ceremonial act to show that they were purifying themselves from the surrounding world. But Jesus comes along and he blows this whole idea up on his head. Jesus says, no, it's not what consumes, what you consume that defiles you. It's not what goes into your body that makes you sinful and unclean. He says, it's your own heart that does that. Jesus is saying the problem is not what goes in, the problem is what comes out. And so here's something this shows us today, this is so important. I think most of us realize this, but it's so important for us to remember about ourselves. The main problem that you have in your life and the main problem that I have in my life, Jesus is saying it's not our environment, it's not our circumstances, it's not our friends, it's not our family of origin. Like all those things matter. All those things have a profound impact on our lives. But the ultimate problem, Jesus is saying, is not those things. The ultimate problem in your life and the ultimate problem in my life is our own hearts. She's saying, that's the ultimate issue here. That's the problem, and that's huge because that changes the script on what the religious leaders taught about sin. See, follow me with this for a second, because we're gonna get kind of wordy. All right, but the religious leaders thought that you were a sinner because you sinned. All right, you're talking about the religious leaders. Thought, well, the reason you're a sinner is because you sinned. They're saying, it's the external reality that makes you a sinner. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The reason that you sin." is because deep down, you're actually a sinner, right? It's the internal reality of your heart that is causing all of those things to come out in your life and cause you to sin. That's a huge difference. Because again, the Pharisees taught and the Pharisees thought that it was the internal reality of your heart. They thought that that was a result of the external reality of your actions. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The external reality of our actions, the things we do, are a result of the things that are inside of our hearts. So again, Jesus is saying, the ultimate problem with us, it's not the things we do. It's the heart behind the things we do. It's the will behind the things we do. It's the motivations behind the things that we do. And so here in this teaching, we see another way that so vastly sets Jesus far above the things that religion can do for us. Because again, religion taught that the problem is from the outside, but Jesus is showing, no, 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 the problem's deeper than that. All of our problems really start on the inside. And so from that, here is the thing we see, another difference between religion and Jesus. And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. The difference that we see here is that religion can only clean the outside, but Jesus cleans the inside, right? All religion can do for you is clean up the exterior mess of your life. It's only Jesus that can come in and change your heart from the inside out. So it goes on in verse 17. Look at what it says. It says, Jesus then went into a house to get away from the crowd. And his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable that he just used. Don't you understand either, Jesus asked. Can't you see that food goes into your body, or can't you see that the food put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. And by saying this, Jesus declared that every kind of food was acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it's what comes from the inside that defiles you. For it's from within you, out of your heart, that comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality, and theft, and murder, and adultery, and greed, and wickedness, and deceit, and lustful desires, and envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. That is what defiles you. And so Jesus goes on. He expounds on this by basically telling us, "Hey, we're all unclean. We are all sinful and we are not sinful because of the things we do. We do the things we do because we are sinful. Right? Jesus is saying that at the very core of who we are, apart from him, our hearts are crooked and busted and jacked up and unclean. Our hearts are defiled and unclean before God. Now, I believe you may disagree with me, but I believe that every single human being, at some point in their lives, they, at some level, are confronted with that reality, that their heart is crooked and busted and jacked up and not as good as they wished it was, right? Because even if we're the most kind, most loving person in the entire world, like we know that sometimes even our thoughts are not good, don't we? We know that sometimes even when we do good things, the motivations behind the good things we do are twisted and crooked. All of us are at some point confronted with that, that our hearts are dark. Our hearts are crooked and damaged. But here is the tragic mistake that literally billions of people make. They're confronted with that reality that their hearts are crooked, that their hearts are unclean before God, and to deal with it, they run to religion. They're faced with that reality that their hearts are unclean and they run to religion to have religion clean up their hearts. And so they say things like, well, I will work to be a better person. I'll try to do enough good deeds and if I'm a better person and I do some good things and I give to the poor and I do all these good deeds, then that will fix the problem of my crooked, sinful heart. But Again, here's the problem with religion. Religion can only clean you from the outside. See, all religion can do is religion can tell you, do not murder. And you can say, okay, I'm going to obey that. I'm not going to murder anybody. You can obey the rule. You can obey the law. Religion can make you do that. But religion can't fix the anger and the hatred that you have in your heart that ultimately leads to murder. Right, so religion can say, do not murder, but it can't fix the hatred in your heart. Religion can say, do not steal, but it can't fix the greed in your heart. Religion can say, do not commit adultery, but it can't fix the lust that's in your heart. See, in the words of the incomparable Taylor Swift, band aids don't fix bullet holes. All right? She's right. She's spot on. See, going to religion to try to fix your heart, that's like trying to put a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. It may look good for two seconds, but eventually you're going to bleed out and die. Or think about it another way. Imagine if you've been having you know, these massive headaches for a while, and so you go to the doctor they, doctor, they run a bunch of tests, and they come back in and they say, hey, uh, bad news, you're having these headaches because you have a cancerous brain tumor. But good news here, we're going to prescribe you some Tylenol four times a day. Just take the Tylenol, and that will handle the headaches, and they send you on your way. Now, will, will the Tylenol take care of the headaches? Yes, it will. But if the brain tumor is still left untreated, you're still going to die. That's only treating the symptom. And going to religion to treat your heart, that's like treating cancer with Tylenol. You're only treating the symptom. Because again, religion can only deal with the symptoms. It can only deal with the external actions, not the problem behind the actions, which is your heart. And so again, all religion can do is say, hey, try harder not to murder. Try harder not to steal. Try harder not to commit adultery. That's all religion can do. It can only focus on the external realities. But it's only Jesus that can change the heart. Only Jesus can change the heart and cleanse us from the inside out. Those of you who um, follow history, you probably know the name George Wallace. George Wallace was elected the governor of Alabama in 1963. And he was elected the governor of Alabama at the heights of the civil rights movement. And this is a man who, when he ran for governor, he was overwhelmingly elected. Listen to this. He was elected with 96 of the popular vote as a man who was a proud open staunch racist and segregationist he wasn't one who tried to hide it his whole campaign platform was built on racism and segregation and running on that platform he won 96 percent of the vote and man just in in reading his story this week um, and I, I came across so many quotes, so many things he says about the black community that are so evil, so tragic, and so vile that I, I'm, I can't even like, read them to you today. Just awful hatred in this man's heart. And so he took the oath of office on January 14th, 1964. He took that oath standing on a gold star, which marked the spot where 102 years earlier Jefferson Davis had been sworn in as the, presidency, as the president of the Confederacy. And so he stood on that gold star, and in his inauguration speech, which by the way was written by his speechwriter who was a leader in the Ku Klux Klan, in his inauguration speech, this is what George Wallace said. <clears throat> He said, in the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust, and I toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. That was his inauguration speech, and sadly and unfortunately, that was a promise that he actually intended to keep. Because you see, nine years before his inauguration, the Supreme Court ruled on Brown versus the Board of Education, which ruled that segregated schools were unconstitutional. That was nine years before Wallace's inauguration. But still, even nine years after Brown versus the Board of Education, the University of Alabama had still not admitted a black student, despite the fact that countless black students had applied for admission. And so finally, nine years After Brown versus the Board of Education, and the year after Wallace was inaugurated, in 1963, a federal judge issued that the first three black students be admitted to the University of Alabama. And this led to what you see in this picture, an an event known as the stand at the schoolhouse door. Whereas the students showed up to register for their first day of class, Wallace, who you see there with his arms behind him, stood defiant at the entrance of the school to personally block the students from being able to enter the University of Alabama. And Wallace stood there until President Kennedy issued an executive order federalizing the Alabama National Guard who finally came in and ordered George Wallace to step aside. Now, by the way, it's just a side note. For those of us who are like part of my generation and younger, like we read about this stuff and I know sometimes it can kind of feel like ancient history, but those of us who are younger, we need to remember this stuff is not ancient history. Right, HISD, Houston Independent School District was desegregated in 1960. So what that means is that there are people here in this congregation who are only like 68, 69, and 70 who went to segregated schools. All right, this isn't, Ancient history, this is the lived experience of many in our community. This is recent stuff. But Wallace, he he stood defiant at the door to prevent these students from entering school. So, So just think about this man for a second. You have this man whose heart is filled with hatred and with prejudice and with evil. That's what his heart is filled with. And the Supreme Court comes along, and the Supreme Court issues a ruling, basically said, hey, George Wallace, your views are antiquated. Your views are wrong. They're outdated. You need to move on from your views, and you need to change. But for George Wallace, the passing of those laws did nothing to change what was in his heart. But don't get hear me wrong. I'm not saying that laws are unimportant. I'm not saying that at all. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. said when he said, it may be true that a law can't make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important too. Right, so so we should fight for just laws. We should vote for just laws, but we do that with the understanding that no legislation can ever change the human heart from the inside out. And it certainly didn't do that for George Wallace. 16 years later, 16 years after the stand of the schoolhouse door, George Wallace became a Christian. You see, he had been religious his entire life. He grew up going to church his entire life. If you would have asked him, even on this day, hey, George Wallace, are you a Christian? He almost certainly would have said, yes, of course, I'm a Christian. But he wasn't. He had never truly turned from his sin, repented of his sin, calling on Jesus alone alone as his Lord and Savior. But in 1979, he did that. He turned from his sin. He called on Jesus for his salvation. And Jesus began to do what a lifetime of religion and what Supreme Court legislative um, issues could not do. Jesus began to change George Wallace's heart. You see, that same year that he became a Christian, he would go to the Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. By this time in his life, he was in a wheelchair. And he would be wheeled to the front of the congregation, and he would sit in his wheelchair in front of that congregation. And he said, I've now come to understand the pain that has been experienced by the black community in America. And not only did he say that, but then he said, And I have understood that I am responsible for that pain. And he looked at that congregation and asked for their forgiveness. And as his wheelchair was being wheeled out, out of the church, that congregation stood. And in unison, they began singing, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. George Wallace wouldn't just stop apologizing to the people of that church community. He would go on and he would publicly renounce his racist and his prejudice and his segregationist views. He began to seek out civil rights leaders in the black community, and he personally apologized to them. And then a few years later, 1982, he would be elected for one last term as governor of Alabama. And this time, when he was elected as governor, he would go on to appoint a record number of African Americans to positions of leadership in state government. And not only that, he would end up personally placing the crown on the head of the first black homecoming queen of the University of Alabama. That same school that 16 years earlier, he stood to prevent black students from even being able to attend. So he was a religious man all of his life. But religion couldn't do anything to change the cold, vile, racist heart that George Wallace had. Only Jesus could do that. So again, that's all religion can do for you. If you run to religion to fix your heart, all it can do is clean you up from the outside. It can make the outside look pretty. Religion can't fix your heart and change your heart. Only Jesus can do that. here's how, as we close. 1 John 1, 9, this is what the Bible says. It says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And saying that that when we come to Jesus in confession, meaning not just like Jesus, I'm sorry, not just Jesus, I did this, but when we come to Him in confession, saying Jesus, I'm a sinner, I've sinned against You, and I can't fix it. I need you to fix it for me. I realize that you died for my sin, that you rose from death so that I can be forgiven. And I want to follow you. When we come to Jesus with that posture, he forgives all our sin. He cleanses us from all wickedness. He takes out, as that passage Pastor Carlos read earlier said from Ezekiel, he takes out that cold, dead heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit in us that changes our motives, that changes our desires, that changes our will so we begin to follow him. Only Jesus can do that. Religion can never do that for you. So just as we close, I just want to ask you, have you come to Christ? Have you confessed your sin to him realizing that you can't fix your heart? You can't change your heart. Religion can't help you. Only Jesus can do that for you.